starting to get vanilla, citrus, a little bit earthy, and there comes now that flora and fauna uh, conversation where you start to really begin to say this this tastes like this place. Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Sfin podcast. I'm Valentina Gritti, the podcast host, and I'm the global community and project manager of the Slow Food Youth Network. In the episodes of the previous month, we decided to learn more about the forest ecosystem and in particular forest people and land rights. This month, instead, we want to take you to the highlands. But instead of taking it very broad, we have decided to focus on one specialty that grows in the highlands. I'm talking about coffee. Yes, the episode of today is entirely dedicated to coffee. And we also have a very special host for this episode who has carried out all the interviews and basically worked on the whole concept. I'm talking about Kumut Dadlani. We can say that Kumud is a child of Asia. She was born in Tapei, raised in Kuala Lumpur, and currently she is settled in Bombay. In these countries, food is a form of social interaction, and this planted in her the seed for the interest in local food systems and in the culture that surrounds it. Kumud gained a master's in food, place, and identity from the University of Gastronomic Sciences in Italy. As a gastronome, she believes in highlighting seasonal products, protecting traditional knowledge, and that eating is an agricultural act. She has worked with India's top restaurant brands in creating a transparent and shorter supply chain while volunteering for the slow food organization. She is a part-time food writer and a full-time farmer's rights advocate. She is keen to start conversations around the ecological, political and social issues that are facing the current food system. If you want to make her happy, just let her hands touch the soil. Today Kumud is going to take you to a coffee journey in India, Rwanda, Mexico and in Italy. You're going to dig into topics such as coffee agroforestry, specialty coffee and coffee tasting and also the brand new project of the Coffee Coalition of Slow Food. So get yourself a warm cup of coffee and enjoy the episode. having me at the Swin podcast. The theme for the session is Highlands and Coffee. I'll be speaking to people from Mexico, India, Rwanda, and Italy who all have a stake in the value chain of coffee. Highlands as an elevated land area could range from forests to mountains, and the agriculture here plays an important role in enhancing food security and environmental sustainability in many countries of the world. The topography of highlands tend to call for a tough terrain and can come with socioeconomic challenges as well. Now, drinking that cup of coffee has a wide and immense backstory to it, one that we may not realize. While on some level coffee can be a great connector for people, for some it is a painful reminder of their past. As a second most traded commodity after oil, we have entire economies that are dependent 
on coffee production for their GDP. So this begs the question, are we able to grow coffee in a sustainable manner in spite of all the factors I mentioned? A report by the Food and Agriculture Organization states that coffee may not exist in the next 20 years due to climate change. The trend at the moment suggests almost 60% of the coffee production decreasing and varieties of resilient coffee reducing. Growing coffee in the highlands is a complex issue and one should understand the role of it within an ecosystem. Let's not forget the origin story of coffee begins in the highlands of Ethiopia. So some of the questions we'll be targeting in the sessions are where is coffee grown? Who are the people who ensure it is grown sustainably? Do these make for speciality coffee? What is the relationship between birds and coffee, if at all? Let's find out more. So first we have Stephanie and Gerardo from El Cafecol in Veracruz, Mexico. It is a center for the development and transfer of knowledge and technology oriented towards the sustainable development of growing coffee. Can you tell us more about Cafe Call and the work that is being done by the organization? This is the, the origin of Cafe Call. We were trying to, to be uh, available to, to, to produce, grow and live from mm -hmm. the coffee. The objective for, for us mm -hmm. is preserve the diversity of the forest, mm -hmm. the, the diverse production to goods to, for, for consume, and we transfer the knowledge to the producers about the secrets of the very good coffee. Mm -hmm. And after of this, we empower the producers to, to make a trade. And we began with the idea that we can we can show to the producers how make a very good commerce. but. Mm -hmm. But this is a, 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 a huge knowledge. Mm -hmm. So we develop the, the program uh, that is uh, related to some brand that we develop, that is Oikos. We don't have any certification that exists in the market like, like uh, Fairtrade because their brands have uh, some guidelines, Correct. but we we saw in the field that that don't have the impact, the real impacts. Mm. No, that's the reason because we decide to 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 work with quality, traceability, and more transparency. We collaborate with the producers in all the change of value, and we provide some services. Mm -hmm. But it's, 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 this is the mean of the of the work is mm -hmm. our service. Mm -hmm. We are not. In the coffee, first is uh, uh, capacitation with quality, okay. and after of the we we uh, with a coppers with a panel of coppers mm -hmm. we are evaluating all this coffee, mm -hmm. and after of this it helps to make some relation of market, and with with idea with transparency that the roasters can know the, mm -hmm. the producers and they know how how much is the pay for okay. the producer with this method we can transfer 70 percent more than a conventional price and we are working with producers to recovery uh, the the divers of the of the system of culture now they have these divers but they 
in some cases are not seeing the richness they can be completely autonomous if if they want you know? and the the people that need these producers uh, are we in in the cities you no know? is there any history that can suggest where the native people grew coffee and if you know any of that growing pattern or any knowledge that they have is that something that is known a lot of people say the coffee in cherry here in, in, in this state mainly so they don't have a very good knowledge to to keep the quality okay. no in the process they have a very good uh quality in origin but they don't know no and 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 the right process to depulp the the coffee and fermentation mm-hmm. and now the fermentations are uh, a top a top top trending yeah. in the in the themes of coffee mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. but uh, we discovered the the fermentation mm-hmm. uh, uh, maybe five years when i say discover the fermentation is that we use the fermentations uh, since beginnings of the process of coffee maybe three thousand uh, uh, years ago but the fermentation was a process for only to get out the the mucilagate the mucilag mm-hmm. but now we are discovering the advantage mm-hmm. to manage the fermentation and we had uh, to to organize these communities mm-hmm. because I don't know in other parts of the world but uh, here in Mexico is it's uh, relatively difficult to organize the producers the idiosyncratism is very hard in Mexico so the relations of work with the with the producers and uh, when they are neighbors, don't work very well yeah. so this is another kind of support mm-hmm. because when like another of uh, that is out of the of the community that we are these persons yeah is like, like some three person third person that that can be like a external job for for to say something that help to 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 people that don't work together before now are working together yeah that's really nice to hear it's so important to win the trust of the people that you're working with and that takes time i feel can you um tell me a little bit about veracruz i'm very interested to know about the region and what kind of trees grow there and just a little bit about the agroforestry aspect the state of, of veracruz uh is a very blessed region uh, in the in the country but not only in the country mm-hmm. in the world mm-hmm. why i'm saying this because even with uh, a climatic change scenarios mm-hmm. when a lot of parts are, are losing quantities import, important quantities of precipitation mm-hmm. and increase the heat uh, the the impacts in the models are not so so great mm-hmm. no Mexico for the, the position latitudinal position we are very close to the north mm-hmm. no even coffee lands are very uh, very near to the subtropical in this part of, of the of the state mm-hmm. uh, you can go to the snow mm-hmm. and to the to the to the sea mm-hmm. and you can swim in the sea in, in t- 35 degrees 
in maybe three hours wow. to the snow to the mm -hmm. sea. All the 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 wet of the Gulf current, this this no comes to the Sierra and stop in the mountains, and it's a very 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 cloudy and very rainy. And in Mexico, have this mix of of kinds of, of flora and fauna and ecosystems mm -hmm. and hybrid systems. Okay. So you can find uh, a, a lot of species that you can find in Canada or mm -hmm. in the United States, mm -hmm. but you you can find some species that are, that are in Brazil, mm -hmm. no, in the Amazonas. So in this mix, uh, the the most greater diversity for unit area is the, the, the cloudy forest that the name is the mesophyll uh, cloud. This uh, forest system, mountain tropical forest system, is the, is the most dangerous to disappear mm. in the world. Is that a result of climate change? Obviously, the forestry, the forest, the forestry activity, and uh, the cattle too, and the of, of course the 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 growing of the cities yeah. too. The most green parts of the important green parts in in the in the country scale yeah. is where the coffee grows. Can you tell me a little bit about the trees that is grown around the coffee plantations and how that transforms flavors as well? You know why why should when you go meet a new producer, why do you tell them to grow in an agroforestry method? We don't have recommendations about the trees. Maybe, maybe we are learning more that what, how the, the, the producers manage mm -hmm. the trees. We have some recommendations how to adapt these uh, trees. Some aspect is uh, regulate the, the shape. And we are to, to empower the producers that make records about the climate, mm -hmm. the weather, mm -hmm. and the year, mm -hmm. and relative make more systematically relations be between the the weather and the effect of the of the cover shade and the effect in the production. When we start to work, mm -hmm. we we have a lot of a lot of interest to export this coffee. Mm -hmm. And we we received a lot of um, buyers from Japan and Canada, you know. And but now we are uh, more interest interesting in develop the the local and national roasters. Mm -hmm. So now the principal uh, buyers of this coffee are national. And the idea is to to create like a like a red mm -hmm. like a like a net mm -hmm. uh, from these national roasters that are nice. uh, buying coffee to these small producers, mm -hmm. and that they are interested in the quality mm -hmm. and they work with specialty coffee. But the um, the mainly uh, work. Is, is not this, is that um, the producer is really um, living mm -hmm. from, the, from the coffee.
Llega la primavera, sueño contigo, sueño contigo. Next, we move on to India. We have Ashia Bose, a trained social scientist who started Black Bazaar Coffee, which is an activist company. Their purpose is to enable coffee producers to enjoy secure and stable livelihoods and strengthen coffee farming practices that conserve biodiversity in various ecosystems. Theirs is a thousand-year brew, by which I mean working within a model that looks into people, place and ecology. Could you tell us more about how you started your journey with coffee and how the Black Pass has come to be? So, um, I'm a trained social scientist um, and, um, you know, all of my sort of previous training and so on has been the subject of human geography and, you know, in all of my earlier work experience, um, I was mostly working on nature conservation, but specifically on what sorts of connections and relationships indigenous communities had with nature and therefore in our effort to conserve nature how why how might we um really you know have indigenous communities lead conservation movements within this i was you know when i sort of um started out my phd i was interested in looking at whether there had been any experiments that looked at sort of incentivizing or shifting land use from unsustainable farming practices to sustainable farming practices and um globally you know certifications for coffee are one of the most widespread examples of um a sort of incentive mechanism to change farming practice or to change land use practice and although i wasn't sort of personally familiar with certifications in the sense that we don't really drink or have access to too many sort of certified coffees in india but i was surprised to know that there were actually a, a, a fairly large number of certified coffee plantations and it became therefore interesting to see whether um you know if you were a certified plantation if you were a certified coffee estate whether it had had any impact either on your livelihood or your access to market and so on and so forth or environmentally um it's i guess during that process that um you know of spending about 4 5 years in parts of kulg and other kind of coffee growing regions in the western ghats the research was telling me something interesting and it was that by and large certifications for coffee sort of maintained business as usual um and that not too much in depth transformation had happened either from a social or economic equity perspective but also from an ecosystem conservation perspective that i think kind of where the seed for trying to do something as an alternative to certification sort of came about um and the effort therefore became could we actually do something fairly hands on uh that was locally relevant that provided coffee producers uh economic social 
incentive to be actively conserving biodiversity on their farms to be actively growing coffee in a way that protected the local ecosystem rather than destroyed it um and we didn't think that sort of um environmental campaigns and advocacy and awareness alone would fill that role but we did feel that having a coffee brand or having a coffee roastery that directly bought coffee procured coffee had long term um market associations with coffee producers might be one way to shift farming practice from from something that seemed at risk to something that was much more in tune with what the local ecosystem was i want to go in depth into coffee in india and who really are the people who grow our coffee and what is the nature of this plant in india there are about 300000 coffee growers in the country and again a majority of them really grow coffee on very small bits of land um and so in the areas where we work the average land holding is about half an acre so they would they would not even really be coffee farms or plantations but more homestead gardens um that said you know we find that um there's quite a lot of variation and there's a lot of sort of you know the coffee landscape is not heterogeneous and the is heterogeneous and and coffee growers are also heterogeneous so you have um fairly large land holdings of about 1000 acres or so um at two much smaller uh, land holdings as well um and you know the kind of who grows coffee is also an interesting question in india um so you have you know much, some of the kind of older coffee farms are very much uh, erstwhile um plantation set up by um british colonizers that were then kind of handed out to uh local people in the area um and then you also have much more recent coffee so we find that um a number of people who are growing paddy in low lying areas have transitioned to coffee um in the past 20 or 30 years or people growing rubber actually have transitioned to coffee people growing cardamom have transitioned to coffee and also people practicing shifting cultivation in parts of the northeast have transitioned to coffee and and it's interesting why they might have done so um because coffee is you know partly it's an ecological thing which is that um coffee is is somewhat fair is fairly resilient particularly if you're growing robusta um coffee is also something that wildlife doesn't eat so if you're in um a fairly forested part where there's a lot of wild where, where there are a lot of wild animals deer bear elephants uh wild pigs um and and if you're growing millets or rice then you find that there's a lot of offtake of your crop and so um we find that you know in 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 some parts of kerala and including karnataka as well people kind of cycled through different crops to find which one would stick um to find which one animals would meet and coffee became one of them i guess we still have man trying to understand our relationship to coffee while nature has really laid down a system could you tell us more about how does coffee interact with the biodiversity found in the highlands of india do you think this interaction translates to flavor in the cup yeah i mean so i mean you know because even the coffee ecosystem varies depending on where in the indian subcontinent you're growing coffee 
um and a lot of it really depends on the altitude the forest the vegetation type the soil type and some of that is what we would think of as terroir or leading to kind of the influencing what the flavor of coffee is but of course it's also influencing the ecosystem beyond coffee um and so depending on where you are you find a kind of very very wide diversity of species so one of the regions where we work um the actually altitudinal gradient goes from sort of 800 meters to 1600 meters and at 800 meters you have coffee that's growing in a very dry deciduous ecosystem so a lot of the species you see there are those that thrive in dry deciduous forest um elephants for example um a range of spotted deer uh barking deer um a lot of the kind of scrubland birds um you know uh, tree pies malcohas you find um a, a range of sort of scrubland and dry deciduous birds and the further kind of further up the mountain or really the highland that we move up you actually move up to 1600 meters where we find the ecosystem is grassland um and in india we have a very very unique and threatened habitat called the shola grasslands which are high altitude grasslands and in some parts of india you have coffee growing alongside shola grasslands as well and so the kind of um ecosystem the kind of birds and so on you see are just are specialists at using grassland habitats and um that's i think what makes it so kind of interesting and exciting so that in a, you know you can sort of map your the taste or the flavor of coffee along with that vegetation or you know forest kind of map um i mean indian coffees are kind of interesting in terms of their flavor so when we sort of compare our coffees to the south american or central american coffees or you know even coffees from parts of kenya and ethiopia and southeast asia um it's it's harder i think to pick up um distinct flavor notes as you grow across region and 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 of course one of the most important determinants of flavor in coffee is also what happens to coffee beans once they're picked so you know how coffee is is pulped how coffee is fermented how coffee is dried and then so on so forth really play a huge role in 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 what that flavor profile is um and so there's quite a lot of i think variation therefore in indian coffee a quick reminder that you can support this fin podcast and have access to extra material by becoming a slow food news network patron on patreon.com/join/slowfoodnewsnetwork so why don't you buy us a coffee on patreon today I have the pleasure to introduce you to Arthur Karlethwa. I heard him speak for the first time at Math Symposium in 2018 and his story has stuck with me ever since. Arthur's from Rwanda and has been a witness to its very painful time. I speak of the genocide in 1994 where coffee played a big role in its uprising. Arthur has been able to take this experience and extend it to his life's mission to wage a war on poverty. through the vehicle of coffee he has worked towards putting together a traceability program using blockchain technology which in turn gives every single producer and the land attached to them a face a name 
and identity. Let's hear more from him. Hi, Arthur. Could you tell us about the role of coffee in Rwanda and how is it tied to the identity of the people? My country, country's uh, backbone is, is, is held up straight by agriculture. Its nervous system is products like coffee and tea. Uh, it's nervous, I call it its nervous system because it's not only the uh, economic backbone, but it's also the, the social fabric or the social glue keeps us together. So the way coffee was introduced to my country uh, by the Dutch and Belgian colonies was not f- for that particular purpose. It was for the purpose of the economic gain of, of, of the European colony. Uh, and so with that introduction, uh, three laws were, were established that essentially for me were, were the cyclical component of, of, of uh, keeping people in poverty. And those three laws at the introduction of coffee in my country was, uh, um, one, you, you had to grow coffee. didn't matter if you had a 10 by 10 plot of land behind your, your parcel or behind your, your house. Uh, if you grew carrots and beans and, and all the staple you know, food crops that you need to survive, you had to find a spot to grow coffee. So that's rule number one. A second rule was you you have you could not cut a tree down without permission. So if if if, if you felt like it was diseased or in the way or uh, was encroaching on your food products, you could not just pluck it out of uh, the ground. You you had to get permission. Um, this, the the third law was uh, you could not consume coffee um, as, as 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 a grower. Um, coffee was regarded as an export-only product. To this day, uh, ever since the you know 19 well, early 1900s when it was introduced, um, there's these old-time farmers who will tell you to this day, <clears throat> do not drink coffee. It's it's a Western medicinal product, um, and so the the story and the myth. Uh, the message has 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 uh, ingrained the community so much so that people still believe that. As much as I can push uh, incredible tasty coffee out of Rwanda in, into the uh, markets and, and consuming countries, um, I, I I knew that what was missing with this product was the identity of the people behind the product. I had also realized just how much coffee was. Um, was revealed in the marketplace. I mean, people knew everything about a specific coffee from a specific little town in the middle of Rwanda or in the middle of Ethiopia or in the middle of what other country grows coffee. I mean, consumers and roasters and, 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 and connoisseurs, you know, you know, had some of them had never left their their, their state or let alone their, their their town, but they could tell you all about this this little village in Ethiopia that grows this incredible coffee. That they could tell you about its soil, they could tell you about its altitude, they could tell you about its people, its community. Uh, they could tell you. How, how what it tasted like and the variety of coffee that grows there how it was processed i mean granular details about this product but ask them about the people who grow it and you could hear pin drop and so that that i find i found you know that is a massive gap um in, in the lack of uh understanding the value of, of one's identity how would you say that the narrative of speciality coffee has been played out and the sort of guidelines that have been put forth. The narrative of this product and its specialness has only has been driven thus far 
by the consuming side of the product. And the producer side has really never been part of that narrative. You know, basically, how can it be special? How does it transform specialness or the chasm of specialty uh, somewhere between the middle of the producer and the consumer? At what point did it turn into, you know, super bean uh, between when it was produced and when it got to the roaster or the consumer? It's either a special product from when it is at conception, which is when it's at the producer level, all the way to the consumer level, or it's not. There needs to be uh, a, a conversation of this contentious terminology on on a roundtable where both producers and uh, refiners and processors and roasters and consumers, you know, uh, can help define what that actually means. Um, there's a technical uh, definition, but there should also be a human definition. Uh, can a coffee be special um, after it's been tasted, or is it special all the way from when it's grown? There's a disconnect about what is specialty coffee and, and, and how it's defined and by whom it's defined for. Very true, Arthur. I think coffee by itself has a large social connotation and the human aspect of it isn't highlighted as much. In terms of the connection of flavor and terroir, do you see that playing out in coffee of the highlands as well? Could you shed some light for us on the agroecological characteristics of it? Yes, there's, there's absolutely no doubt um, in, in, in the world of uh, you know, curators or connoisseurs, or uh, if I would call them coffee hunters, people seeking you know, exceptional coffees, <clears throat> there's no doubt about it that um, these people seek uh, you know, high altitude coffees. Um, high altitude coffees uh, generally command a far better market, uh, not only price, but because they, they have an exceptional flavor, uh, vibrancy. Uh, than their counterpart that are grown at, at lower altitudes. The, the influence of geographies, you know, uh, on flavor of, of coffee is obviously profound and, and real. As you keep going up to about 1,200 meters, which is about 4,000 feet, you start talking about high altitudes. Now you're looking at Costa Rica, Mexico, Sumatra, Nicaragua. Now the cherries is, is really getting a little bit more mature and more developed, and it's taking its time with cooler, cooler temperatures at night you know, subtle uh, rainfall, foggy mornings, and it's developing much slower and you're getting a little bit deeper red cherry as well. Um, so you're starting to get now cocoa notes. You're starting to get vanilla, citrus, a little bit earthy. And there comes now that flora and fauna uh, conversation where you start to really begin to say, this this tastes like this place, whereby that earthy, earthy uh, flavor that you get in Sumatra and that those herbal notes you can't get anywhere else because of the kind of composition that soil is. And um, you get that vanilla and, and cocoa notes that you know Nicaragua and Mexico have based on that volcanic ash that it has and so on and so forth. And now when you get to the pinnacle here where you're talking about 1,500 plus meters, 5,000 feet you know, plus, that's very high altitude. You know, some of the incredible peaks of Colombia, the incredible uh, uh, mountains of Ethiopia, Guatemala, Rwanda, Kenya, you know, Rift Valley areas. Um, now you start to really get maturation whereby you start to realize, wow, coffee is actually uh, a fruit. You get the fruity taste 
you start to get the complexity of flavors. You start to get acidic that is sweet, subtle, and mire. Then even um, the florals, you start to get the florals because you've got the flowering happening slowly. You've got the jasmine uh, aromatics that are happening much slower. Uh, the, the flower is not actually being burnt off by the sunlight and, and falling off right away. It's maturing all the way to its end where pollinization is happening at a very slow, slow rate. And thereby the fruit of the tree is coming out of this, um, this flower after it's fallen in a way that is, is natural and not sped up by the variations of temperature. Uh, a place like Rwanda, which is essentially called the Switzerland of Africa, except that it's not snow peaked, uh, it's green peaked, meaning it's, 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 it's in a latitude area that doesn't get snow, but it's, is, it is as mount, mountainous as it is in Switzerland. It's very rare you find a flat piece of land that's as long as, you know, 10 miles long because of just the continuous rolling hills of Rwanda. Uh, it's, the country's coined a thousand hills, the land of a thousand hills. And, and so with, with that kind of topography, you are essentially looking at one of the most incredible microclimatic conditions. And when you talk about microclimatic conditions, it means that just because you, you, you're on one side of the hill in one specific region, uh, doesn't mean that your coffee is gonna be the same on the other side of the hill. Uh, it's going to be completely different. The altitude, the rainfall, uh, the sunlight. Interesting story about uh, I met with a, a father and son who uh, were talking about when his, uh, his son got married and was going to move to the other side of the hill with his new bride. Uh, he asked his dad for some seedlings of his uh, incredible coffee, which was award-winning. Uh, his father asked him, you know, where where are you and your new wife going to move to? And uh, as soon as the son said, oh, I'm moving across the hill from you, uh, his father said, I, I cannot give you my seedlings. And, and, and to the son's shock, he says, why not? And his father, you know, quickly rebuked and said, your, uh, your coffee is not going to taste the same. You're going to, these seedlings are going to be a waste to you. And uh, his father continued by saying, just because you're across the hill, uh, you are on the sun side. I'm on the uh, rain side. And so you cannot uh, uh, expect to have the same coffee as me on that side of the hill. And, and since then, his son has moved next door to his father because of the coffee. <laughs> yeah, so that's just how microclimatic uh, uh, Rwanda is, how unique from a geographical, topographical flora and fauna, you know, um, and finicky coffee is. What would you say is the effect of climate change and what are the variables required to grow coffee in the highlands? With, with conditions changing in the world from a climate standpoint uh, uh, and also urbanization, coffee is finding itself having to grow at higher altitudes than usual. Um, this has also increased a high risk of uh, some communities that have to go up highlands because as, as, as coffee is being pushed up from urbanization and from climate, so are, uh, so is wildlife. Uh, and so with, with that wildlife going up uh, to higher altitudes and people meeting them where they are, uh, you get a lot of, uh, uh, get a lot of risk of wild animals, uh, at the risk of farmers and, and the cohabitation of that. 
you get uh, a lot of less more a lot less of production with going up higher as well and coffee producers um, finding it very hard to to harvest at, at high altitudes when it comes to highland growers they need to be equipped with the ability to process their own coffee with the ability to move their own coffee with the ability to sell their own coffee to be able to reap the true benefit of highland coffee to conclude this topic we have emmanuel dugera who is from the slow food foundation for biodiversity he serves as a project coordinator for africa and the middle east furthermore he manages slow food actions a grassroots project in the southern african countries as well as portuguese speaking countries in africa he tells us more on a new project called the slow food coffee coalition Manuel, as an Italian drinking espresso almost every morning, how did your world of coffee expand? Could you tell us more about your journey to coffee? My professional approach to coffee began where everything starts, from the soil, from the earth, from our journey. In 2014, I made a wonderful trip to a beautiful and unknown place in Africa. the islands of Sotomay Principe to visit coffee plantations and I did it in substitution of a colleague of mine so I definitely got lucky when I left I knew almost nothing about coffee but fortunately with me there was also a great coffee expert the Italian coffee roaster Enrico Meschini who taught me a lot about coffee and after that I became a passionate about the subject coffee i started it i checked it i tested coffee and so on i also visited all, all the others plantations in africa so i became a coffee lover and i think it was fundamental to start my journey in the coffee world among farmers with them and see in practice what are the difficulties involved in growing coffee because the plantation is just the beginning of a long chain often unfair that enriches the players that stay in the middle of the chain but certainly not the farmers so i realized that nowadays there is a huge lack of knowledge about coffee which is not an energizing drink with a standard taste coffee is much more than a generic espresso we order as it were a refill of fuel to give us more boost to face the day There is a great need to give dignity to the work of many farmers who cultivate coffee in a way that respects the environment and the biodiversity. And the work of roasters that transform the coffee that we can drink. This is one of the reasons why we had the idea of the Slow Food Coffee Coalition, a project whose funding partners are Slow Food and Lavazza, 
a newborn project that we haven't launched yet. How would the principles of slow food be imbibed into the project? So the idea is to promote the production and the consumption of good, clean and fair coffee for all. A coffee that must be an expression of a supply chain governed by honest and intact relationships in which all actors are connected and information is shared openly. The Slow Food Coffee Coalition aims to raise the level of agronomic, organoleptic, social and economic quality of the coffee we drink every day. And we want to make critical mass, increase the awareness of producers, community, institutions, company and consumers. We will create a promotion system for the coalition coffee that allows an easy identification of the product by consumers, even not experts. This would be done through a specific logo. This will be kind of a certification, but slightly different from those that exist. First of all, we think that no fees should be never paid by the producers to have a certification. That is why we will work with some communities to develop a PGS system, which is a participatory guarantee system. And then because farmers will have an active role and will participate in the political choices of the future of the coalition, sitting at the same table with roasters, institutions and big companies. And this is because only by acting collectively and not individually, we will be able to improve the coffee supply chain. So the farmers will be the protagonists of the coalition. We need to bring the farmers closer to consumers because, and this is, is very important, this is crucial, because coffee is not a drink. Coffee is a plant. And the origin of this plant and the farmers who grew it is really important. Take wine, for instance. Would you accept that the wine are you drinking is just an Italian red wine and that's it? I don't think so. This is because in the coffee chain there are many steps, maybe too many, and we tend to forget the most important one, the most difficult one, the one that gives life to the world process, farmers. So we as consumers must absolutely demand to know who produced the coffee we are drinking, to give the right value to the farmers. But also because by doing that, we can begin to understand the great differences in flavor that exist in coffee as in wine. Only we don't know them, we don't know that flavors because we are happy with a standard espresso all over the world. So let's stop being lazy and Get to know better the coffee world because most of us drink coffee every day, several times a day. So I wrap up with two words very important that are traceability and transparency. Absolutely, Emmanuel. Traceability and transparency is the future of coffee. Rightly said by the speakers today, we have to give due attention to where coffee is grown, by whom, what kind of conditions were they met with, while keeping in mind fair wages. There lies a strong social element which extends beyond a commodity that is merely traded. 
Let's keep this in mind when we're buying and choosing our beans, our grind size and our roasts. Let's think of the birds and the bees instead and the land, the people that helped us get that cup of coffee. Thank you, Komod, for taking us through this coffee journey. I personally found it extremely interesting, especially because the hosts of today were not from countries that come to our minds straight away if we think about coffee. I mean, who among us knew anything about specialty coffee in India or the flavors of Rwandan coffee? It's so cool! And the key lessons to bring home today are, first of all, Everyone drinks coffee, but very few people drink it consciously. What I mean is, we don't normally care so much about the coffee variety, its origin and even the producers behind it. The second point is linked to this one, so the producers are extremely important and it is essential to work with communities, to learn from each other and to put the identity of a person behind a cup of coffee. Last but not least, we still need to go a long way to have a fair coffee chain, as well as to understand how the differences in coffee flavor are linked to its territory, like in wine for example, as well as its production methods. I would suggest to stay tuned for the upcoming Slow Food Coffee Coalition project, which really seems to bring all these points together. Anyway. I remind you that this series of podcasts is organized on the occasion of Terra Madre 2020, the biggest event that the slow food movement organizes every two years. It involves food, communities and activists from all over the world. This edition, due to the global pandemic, will have a big digital part and you can find the whole program on terramadresalonedelgusto.com. The link is in the podcast description. So please visit the website of Terra Madre and remember to support us on Patreon. We'll meet again this month with another unique episode, this time set in Peru. This is Valentina Gritti and you are listening to the Slow Food Youth Network podcast. Ciao!